Hello, podcast audience. Before we start this week, I want to jump in real quick to apologize. Uh, Unfortunately, my track was accidentally recorded using the internal mic on my computer instead of my normal podcasting microphone, so it's not going to sound quite as good as usual. Chris, however, sounds great, so I'm still putting this episode out. Uh, Thanks for understanding, and now on with the show. Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to Episode 5 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Chris Parrish. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, Maybe you could, we could start by just, you know, you saying how people might know you and, you know, etc. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, There's probably a few things in recent times that people might know me from. Uh, most recently, I've been part of a company called Agent Distilled uh, that makes that app for the Mac called Napkin. And that's been quite a few years. I was just renewing the paperwork on the business recently. I was like, oh yeah, we've been doing this longer than I thought. It feels like we just started that, but it's been a while. Uh, and then prior to that, I was part of a kind of a small independent company that I formed uh, with some pals of mine from Adobe. And uh, it was called Rogue Sheep. And we did a lot of things there, but one of the th- things that probably got the most notoriety was an app called Postage, which won uh, ADA from uh, Apple some years back, at the beginning of the iPhone era. And then other than that, I've done a lot of contracting and various things inside the Mac and iOS space. So there's a chance somebody might have run across me from that, occasionally speaking at conferences and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've definitely, I think we've definitely spoken at like 360 iDev at the same time yeah. before. Almost positive that's been the case. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So let's go back to the beginning then, and we can kind of go through your whole, uh, I, I kind of go through your whole career here and then get back up to the present and then talk about what you're working on now. Um, so you're talking about getting started at Adobe. Uh, how did you get, you worked there for quite a while. And then I guess, it, you know, you took, you know, you and some people from Adobe went and started Rogue Sheep. So maybe just talk about what you did at Adobe, how you got yeah. started there, and then how you made that transition. Sure, you bet. Um, yeah, getting the job with Adobe was kind of a fantastic bit of luck, really. Um, I was one of those nerdy kids that was always into computers. Uh, and because of that, I had done some work with my grandfather who had a printing business, right? Uh, so they made labels. And he was really always into computers, had computers well before most any other one else would have any kind of computer that they owned that he uh, used to run his business and tinker around on. So when the Mac came around and that first laser writer kind of showed that there was this chance to do typography and interesting graphic design stuff on a personal computer, uh, he was super interested and he followed that closely. And so when I was a teenager, he ended up being one of the first places I lived in Oklahoma City and around that area. And that's where he had his business. And uh, he was one of the first people to have like a high end image setter that could do, you know, 600, 1200 DPI imaging to film and paper for real print work, uh, back in the days. And, um, he started a business, he bought that for his business, but then he also sort of started a side business to do output for people. So people who had desktop publishing files that they needed to have output at uh, high resolution. And he brought me in to sort of like, kind of learn that with him as he was starting that up. And I did a lot of kind of troubleshooting all of that stuff. And then if you've ever 
had to deal with PostScript. I mean, we're kind of getting to the point where no one even knows what PostScript is anymore. But but we all know printing sucks. If you had to print, it sucks. PostScript wasn't really any better and, in fact, added a lot of complications. And so I learned a lot about PostScript and Adobe's products in, in that time. I did a lot of typesetting for him and also some artwork kind of tasks for them in the various, you know, um, desktop publishing and kind of creative apps. And so there was a lot of Adobe work. So I came out of being a young person, having all this experience with Adobe apps and Macs. And, uh, about halfway through college, I kind of had had my fill in up and moved to Seattle kind of randomly and was looking for jobs because you sometimes need a job to pay for food and housing and things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it turns out that Adobe had a large facility here in Seattle because they had just acquired Aldis from the company that made PageMaker and other apps. Uh, and they needed tech support jobs. Um, so, uh, I applied, got right in and then, uh, started doing tech support for, for PageMaker and Adobe Illustrator, uh, as a contractor at Adobe. And then you can imagine those aren't necessarily the funnest jobs, kind of stressful being on the phone all the time, <laughs> dealing with people's problems. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I had a, had a background. I'd been working on an electrical engineering degree and I'd, I'd been programming computers since I was a kid. And, and that was sort of, you know, something I felt like I was pretty familiar with. So I just started kind of tinkering around, picking up my programming skills that I'd let lay dormant for a year or two while I was at Adobe. And before too long, I'd moved over to QA. I was doing development work for, uh, what we called, uh, black box testing in QA. I mean, white box testing in QA where, um, we were building automated testing type facilities into the successor to PageMaker and for PageMaker. And that successor ended up becoming InDesign. Then eventually I moved over to work on the development team, uh-huh. uh, on, InDesign and InDesign-related products at Adobe uh, and spent many years doing that. So so this would have been around the mid-90s or so? Yeah, let's see. So I moved out to Seattle in like 95, I think. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was right about that time. Uh, Adobe had just acquired all this and Java just became a thing and uh, the internet was getting big. So that's, re- so that's all really interesting. The thing I want to ask you about is actually... Uh, Slightly tangential, what you just said, um, which is so. I guess you would have been moving to Seattle, uh, like right at kind of the tail end of the grunge period, then, huh? Yep, it was sort of cooling down, but still had you know quite deep uh, imprints on the uh, the scene around here and, and what everyone was talking about and doing. Yeah, what was Seattle like in 1995? It was super fun. Like you can imagine for me too. You know, I grew up in Oklahoma City, and so Seattle felt a lot like a big city. You know, uh, even though. Really, my friends and I kind of jokingly called it big city light. It's got a lot of the mm-hmm. big city things, but it's really easy to live here. And it's not, you know, not at all like something like, a, you know, a Chicago or a New York or something. Right. But uh, but it felt like moving to the big city. And uh, I, I loved it. I loved living here during that time. Um, I'm not sure how I got anything done because I, you know, I was out all the time going out every night to, to see music, to go dancing, to hang out with friends. Uh, it was it was a really fun place to be. That's awesome. Um, so you moved to Seattle. You started uh, doing, uh, you know, support and like phone support and then QA at Adobe and eventually moved into engineering. Um, and then I guess you and some of your buddies from Adobe went and did this rogue sheep thing. Yeah. So I'd moved around to a lot of different projects in my time in Adobe. Uh, and there was a period of time in which a group of us had formed up in Adobe to make a sort of successor to PageMaker. So InDesign had come out and uh, 
it was really targeting the high-end publishing market, right? So newspapers and magazines and uh, <clears throat> really, you know, that that top end of publishing. PageMaker uh-huh. had this long legacy of doing some of that, but also all of that sort of lower end publishing, like, you know, maybe you'd think of it as business publishing uh, and things that aren't quite so high end, but lots and lots of business need to do. And so PageMaker still made a lot of money doing that at that time. Um, we were tasked with building a version of, or building off of InDesign to build something that targeted that market, right? That kind of maybe pared down the feature set some and streamlined the process and had a little bit more approachable user interface uh, for the more casual desktop publisher. Um, it's like InDesign light. Yeah, yeah, that was that's yeah. very much so, which would sort of slip right in to replace that market that PageMaker mm-hmm. still was doing, but kind of was getting pretty long in the tooth for it. Yeah, so like a more modern sort of thing that was more maintainable kind That's of right. idea. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Um, and so we small team, uh, you know, I think total there was, there was less than 10 of us total when you count, you know, everyone, uh, working on it, QA marketing and, uh, product management and, uh, development. <clears throat> and we really enjoyed working together. And unfortunately there was kind of an upheaval and that project was killed after we'd oh, been no. working on it for, I, uh, you know, I want to say it was like nine months. I probably got that time period wrong, but it was somewhere around mm-hmm. that, like a year or something. Uh, I had also at that time kind of like gotten a little disillusioned with how things worked in a company like Adobe. It was really hard to start new projects. I felt like inside Adobe. Uh, and it felt mm. for me, it felt more like, um, you know, I, I call it code monkey. It doesn't seem fair, but you know, it's just like, Coding task got thrown over a fence in most of the other jobs that came on after that project that I was on that we were talking about. Um, and you just kind of did them and moved on. I didn't feel like I was participating much in the design and evolution of the product, right? Uh, yeah. So I was kind of losing interest. It was hard to get new things started. I remember specifically that um, there, had, there was some sort of in, internal company initiative to like, tell us your ideas. You know, we're looking for new things to do. And I remember that um, we submitted one that was like, hey, Adobe really needs an audio editing app. <laughs> And uh, the response back was like, we just don't ever see that as a market we're going to get into. I was like, oh, that's really bummer because I would have loved to work on that. I Right after that happened, I, I decided that I would take a leave of absence. And um, but we skipped one thing. I did actually finish college while I was working at Adobe uh, and got a bachelor's degree. And then I decided, you know what? I really kind of liked being back in the academic world and uh, I'm going to pursue a master's. And so I was working on a master's in electrical engineering and I decided to take a leave of absence from Adobe for the first year of that so I could just focus on those studies. And, and during that time, Adobe acquired, uh, I can't remember the app now, but they acquired a big audio editing app that they later rebranded as uh, Audition, I think is the name of it. And mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, you know, I guess the only way to actually get anything new here is to get acquired from the outside. Uh, and a bunch of my ex-teammates that um, had been working on that uh page maker replacement we're getting restless too and we all enjoyed working together and it was like why don't we just go form a company and make something <laughs> you know and uh, so that's how rogue sheep got started actually and so rogue sheep was like you guys were mostly focused on like mac software and then later ios is that kind of start off as all mac no, or see, it's the classic story that uh that you will you hear so often and probably have have seen so so we had an idea uh and it was completely out of the normal realm, one of the founders' wife was working on her postdoctorate in uh, biology, and she had just done her thesis and had been 
processing all these images, and this is just gets a little technical, but there's a um, type of experiment that is often done in, in biology, uh, gel electrophoresis, uh, to kind of detect small strands of DNA and things like that. There's, there's more to it than, and I'm probably oh, yeah. butchering no. it, but you know, you well, might li- be long time listeners of the show will obviously be familiar <laughs> yeah. with gel electrophoresis. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these images, uh, require lots of labeling and kind of special handling and, and whatnot. And so we were like, why don't we make a, a kind of a app, you know, using kind of our graphics and publishing experience. That's really great at this particular task. Um, and we did, we started working on that and, uh, building it as actually it was a cross platform app at that time. And then mm. this was right around the time that, uh, OS 10 was sort of getting its feet, um, and, it's like 2003, 2004. Yeah, that's, I think, 2003. It was probably 2000, 2003, I think, really, because if I remember right, because I think that I finished my master's thesis in 2003. Um, the, uh, so we kind of, those of us that were more Mac inclined on our small group, we were all like, man, this Cocoa thing's fantastically cool. Like, this building apps in this is great. Uh, and so we did kind of make this uh, idea that, like, well, look, let's build it on the Mac first because we can do it faster there at the sort of fidelity that we want to build it at. Um, and there's enough labs around, you know, that, that have Macs, um, that we can prove that this works and that this market's viable. Uh, and then we'll finish porting it to windows, uh, after that. So we did get a little bit of a Mac focus to start there making this app. Of course, as time went on, we're kind of looking at our options of like, okay, we're all <clears throat> burning the midnight oil to work on this or just burning through the savings, right. To work on this. Um, I was still in grad school, so I was getting a little bit of money working as a research assistant, but <clears throat> I didn't have an infinite supply of savings to live on. Uh, so we were sort of looking at our options, like, you know, here's the timeline for what we think to build and get to the point where this will make money. Uh, and we probably all can't keep working on it that long. So what do we do about that? Um, and, I have a guess. Yeah, you can guess, right? Well, this happens a lot. So we did talk about going to get funding and stuff. We were all like, you know, Ooh, that sounds crazy. And would someone fund it? And we feel like we'd just be making shit up to, to, uh, get, the money and, you know, none of us were great at that business side of it as well as like, mm. well, we lose control over what we were doing. And, you know, I'm like always flying my, like, you can't tell me what to do flag, you know? So, uh, we decided that, Hey, why don't we, there's all these people asking us to do work on InDesign, this product that we know in and out, uh, because we worked on it for so many years at Adobe, there's these contracting opportunities with folks that we know in the industry. Cause in that publishing world, that InDesign, InDesign was kind of unseating Quark, which had become the leader uh, of the high-end desktop publishing. And there was these very complicated systems that kind of built a pipeline of getting the content, you know, into these apps to do the layout and then eventually producing the output. Um, and so, you know, that at that point, people were starting to incorporate content that might be coming from other applications and using XML as the sort of carrier of all that uh, text content. Uh, you know, things had to come, images had to come from the imaging department that was doing some sort of processing to it and get them into the final layout and placeholders. You can just imagine copy mm-hmm. editors and typesetters. And there's so many pieces of people working on getting a newspaper out the door, getting a magazine out the door. Um, and then the web was starting to become a focus. So people were like, okay, we're making our magazine, but we also need to somehow get this content on the web. So there's these huge systems that people make customized to a great degree for a particular institution or publication or whatnot. Uh, and so there was a ton of work out there to help customize InDesign because InDesign was this huge beast of a thing. It was an interesting application because I'd never seen anything like this 
before at the time, not saying it was the first, but I had never experienced anything where it was all plugins. It had this really tiny, small core app, but almost all the interesting functionality in InDesign was built as a plugin. So it had this extensive plugin architecture like I've Mm -hmm. never seen before. Um, So it was really its own huge framework and API, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That was equivalent to, you know, a lot of what you might build a desktop or native application out of. Uh, And so there weren't a lot of people who were really versed in it. It wasn't necessarily documented. It was documented pretty well, but there were certainly corners of the application that weren't well documented, but people who maybe had built that application might know it pretty well. So we found plenty of contracting work uh, to customize these big publishing systems. And so that's what we decided we'd like, we'll earn some money doing contracting, right? The story you've heard before. Uh, and while we continue to work on our thing uh, on on the side, and, and that's the real passion, right? But then, mm-hmm. of course, over time, things mutate and change and the lucrative money from contracting and that the time sink of that contracting, it's really hard to balance that and, and making products. I mean, we did. So, I mean, I'm sitting here babbling forever, but, um, no, that, that, that's okay. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, so we did get to the point where we had prototyped our app enough that we had got uh, a couple of labs that we had connections to where people were using it and, and people really seemed to like it and whatnot, but we sort of became convinced that no one in that market buys software. <laughs> they don't mm. like, they, like they buy hardware, but they didn't see software as an expense. And so we started to get really worried that like, even though there's all these biology labs and this is a really interesting problem to solve, will anyone actually be able to get purchasing dollars for a piece of software and when they see that as a justifiable expense right um Uh and also at the same time we were deep in the george bush presidency which had slashed uh funding to science um and so we were starting to look at like our you know are some of the main institutions really going to also be having these funding cuts making it even harder to sell in to this so we kind of got cold feet and and uh, even though we built some really cool things like one of the proudest things i built and that was this image processing algorithm that um, one of the <clears throat> founders and I of Rogue Sheep uh, built to detect features in these gelatrophoresis images to make it really easy to slap labels on them. Like we, we like, we know, we know you're going to want to label this, this, and this, because we found those features in the image. So we're going to make it super in the UI to make it super easy to do that. Mm-hmm. It was really fun. It was fun to build that app and to explore that space and try to solve those problems that nobody was looking at. Um, but we were like, well, we actually make money at this. Eh. Yeah, so so, so so you guys made yeah you guys did this whole app and you spent all this time on it and you're also doing contract at the same time yeah and then you start realizing like oh there's not really a market here yeah probably not I mean I don't know that we proved that but we certainly scared ourselves out of thinking that 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 there was a market for it right yeah so something I wanted to ask you a little bit about was uh. So, you know, you started off as like, we're going to do this product. And then eventually you realize like, oh, we'll do some contracting to make up for that. And then you start making money at contracting. And that's obviously, you know, like I said, it's like a story that is pretty common, right? Yep. Do you, do you think that's the, so do you think if you, if you had to go back, right? Or, you know, I mean, your situation was obviously very unique at that point, but in general, do you think if you want to do a product company, do you think that that's the right path to go down? I would it, say, oh, go ahead with what you're saying. Oh, because I'm just wondering like how often people start off saying they want, you know, start off wanting to do a product and then end up 
you know, doing contracting and then never really doing any products of their right. own. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, it's not like I'm keeping score. And so it's easy for your instincts to be wrong when you don't really have the empirical data. But I would say that in my experience, that rarely works out. And and there's, there's a couple of examples here and there where you're like, they did it and it's amazing, but there's usually a little bit of luck and some really fantastic timing. And like one of the great examples is Omni group here in Seattle have tons of friends that work there. Right. And they did it right. They totally made that move from, uh, contracting to product and it's fantastic. They make great stuff and they've grown this great company. Uh, that's just an awesome place to work and continue to to pump out really cool products, but they kind of hit this sweet spot where there was this transition that was crippling their contracting dollars at the same time that there was a new platform that was taking off. Right. Um, and so they were almost, you know, they should tell the story cause I'm just, this is just, you know, me kind of repeating what I've heard from, from talking to those guys, but you know, they, they had to make a transition anyway to really keep their company growing and alive. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of forced them while us, it was like in that moment of time, there was just more and more offers for work coming in. Right. You know, to, to always be like, you can always make these contracting dollars. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, I feel like iOS presented a very similar kind of revolution of like, like, Oh, there could, there's always this contracting dollars out there for iOS development for, for many, many years now. Right. You know? So, mm-hmm. so I think you have to hit that sweet spot for it to work. I wouldn't suggest that anyone make that the plan. And I feel like anecdotally, I know lots and lots and lots of people, lots of our mutual friends who want to do the product thing, but stay stuck in the contracting and services piece, right? It's really hard. You have to kind of, I, I don't know, you have to just sort of say, F it, we're, we're doing this, right? And you have to just yeah. be willing to lose all the rest of it. And, you know, like, you know, we have lots of friends who have built up significantly sized companies, um, that's not an easy thing to do. Now you're playing with people's livelihoods, right? You know, so you can't, you know, just make that choice. So my recommendation to anyone who wants to make stuff on their own is to really set yourself up so that you can make something and get it out there and get it done. And don't be dependent on anything that will distract you during that, that, uh, period of time to see if your idea is viable or not. Cause it'll just, it'll be too hard to get away from that. I think. Yeah, I feel like it's very easy, you know, if that's your plan to end up just kind of half-assing both at the same time, right? Yeah. So you never really get your apps out and like you're not really uh, doing the best job at the contracting projects you're doing either. Like it's not, not, not great. Yep. You're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah. you know, and like I said, there's every now and then I don't want to shoot anyone's dreams down. You should do what makes you passionate. And, uh, but just, you know, practical advice from, from looking out there at the landscape over these past, you know, whatever, 20 years that it's been or something crazy number like that. Uh, it's, it's the rare people that make that work. Uh, and so you should probably not plan on going down that path if you can avoid it. Yeah. Although, I mean, there are examples of people who have, right. So the Omni group, obviously they did contracting for years and years and years in the nineties and then made this transition. And then, um, you know, I think, uh, Manton Reese is another one who I think he's, I don't know if he's still doing it, but you know, obviously it seems like he's spending most of his time on his new, uh, microblogging thing. Right. Um, you know, microblog, uh, website. Well, Manton did something really smart there too, like using Kickstarter to sort of maybe replace what would have been that, um, lure for the contracting dollars. Right. You know, so then you've built up, it, it helps your marketing. It helps you make sure you're making the product that 
people want and it gives you incentive because you're like, hey, you know, I did this Kickstarter project. I got to deliver this thing now. Right. So I, I think the way he approached it was super smart. Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. And obviously, you know, in 2003 or four or five, you know, uh, that that wouldn't have been an option. Yeah. But, um, you know, the Kickstarter thing's only really been an option in the last couple of years for people. But uh, that that is a pretty neat way to go if you have something, if you have an, you know, a vision that's so clear like that, you know, that and you can sell it to people like that. Right. Yep. Totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about Rogue Sheep and what you're doing there. And I don't think so. Talk about, uh, you know, so you're doing this um, gel electro <laughs> thing. Uh, and then, sorry, I couldn't remember the name. Uh, so you're doing that and, you know, you've, you've, you kind of, you guys scared yourself out of that. And I guess, did you just, so I, I it sounds like the story is you did contracting, you know, contracting, contracting, contracting. Uh, and then at some point the iPhone comes out, right? Yeah, we had a little, there's probably maybe worthwhile to mention there was a little blip in the middle there where we talked ourselves out of our life sciences product, but then we, we had, you know, enough money built up that we could spend some free time exploring other things. And we decided like, well, you know, what are some other product ideas that are maybe a little more in our wheelhouse? So we started looking at plugins for InDesign and other Adobe products. So we did Mm. for a period of time, sell uh, one or two InDesign plugins and an illustrator plugin. And we had like a illustrator and InDesign plugin and we had like a prototype of a Photoshop plugin. In fact, that was right for people who are on the technology side of this, the Apple technology side of this uh, core image had come out. And this, by the way, this is not the way you should ever approach uh, designing a product, which is like, uh-huh. look at that cool technology. Maybe we could make something that uses that. And that's usually the inverse of the way you really want to make sure that you succeed. It can be fun. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like it was cool to do it, but we basically were like, let's figure out a way to, to make all these core image filters available to anyone who's running an Adobe product on uh, on a Mac. Right. I mean, it wasn't as mm-hmm. important for Photoshop, but in illustrator or InDesign in particular, being able to apply some of those effects was perhaps a interesting idea. So we did do like this really cool, plugin uh that brought all these uh image filtering operations like directly into InDesign. Uh and a couple other like odd like a scripting plugin that lets you do some things with scripting in InDesign that wasn't possible uh otherwise. And you know, like they made a little bit of money. Um mm-hmm. you know, and like some site licenses here and there for uh, the scripting related one did all right, but it wasn't huge, you know. It was definitely kind of like it was really hard and especially we tried marketing but we weren't terribly good at you know being a bunch of engineering types weren't terribly good at marketing into that space and also that plugin world was really kind of starting to change too people were people like i said would do these big customizations to put out you know the new york times but small freelance folks weren't looking a lot for cool plugins to add to their you know uh to their repertoire and to their creative suite app so that market wasn't quite as interesting as it had been some years prior, it mm. seems like, you know, is what we kind of found. So we did. So part of that was getting even more interesting experience kind of deep in the Mac world. And actually I, I kind of forget this. One of the interesting things about this is uh, we built up that whole thing to do the, that carnage filtering mm. and a uh, mutual friend of ours, Gus Mueller flying meat um, was just starting acorn, his uh, image editor. That's quite popular. Um, yeah. He, so it would have been around 2008. Then. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. I, you know, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> I don't remember anything. Um, 
so he was he was just getting started on that and we were talking about core image and we had kind of gotten to this point where like eh, the sales of this plugin aren't that great we're really going to kind of end a life it um and gus was discussing core image stuff with me and i was like what um let's do you just want the code because the, the thing that we built was basically a little coco app that got hosted inside InDesign or illustrator mm-hmm. and uh i was like you can just use this code like if you want or just reference it like whatever you feel like uh if it helps you along your way because we were one of the first people to really build anything around core image uh and uh he later incorporated a big chunk of it into the early versions of acorn so it actually satisfyingly got life and got a lot more use by actual users than what we built uh when gus was able to repurpose and and reuse some of what we had made uh in oh. those early versions of acorn yeah, that's actually, that's really interesting. Uh, and Acorn's such a great app. I love it that is. app so much. Yeah. Um, he's been, yeah, he's been working on that for like, you know, seemingly like 10 years now or something. Know, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So all of that. And then, oh, yeah. so we're at about there. Yeah. <laughs> so you asked about iPhone. And so, yeah, so around this time, um, we, we went through a weird period there where we started to kind of grow the company but then the financial crisis exploded. Oh, uh, yeah. And that hit a bunch of our clients. Like we were, you may remember Lehman Brothers was at the center of that crisis. Mm. And we had been in discussions with those guys to build an interesting thing. And they just kind of disappeared all of a sudden. And then like four oh, weeks later, we hear about their implosion, you know, like, yeah. so, uh, and, and that affected a lot of our other clients too, right? So the, the big companies with the deep pockets were suddenly like, oh, we thought we were going to contract with you guys for... 12 months, but maybe we're just going to finish up in three months. Right. You know? And so we had this period of time then where it's like, things were kind of contracting and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. We had been spending some time looking at, um, InDesign has a, I don't even know if it's still around. That's how disconnected I am from all this now, but InDesign had a server piece, right? So that basically like a headless version of InDesign that was, uh, licensed separately and expensively to build some of these really interesting custom publishing solutions. And so we were looking at building a generic front end to that InDesign server, um, driven by like a, a web app, uh, to serve as like a way that maybe people could, you know, if you, if you bought InDesign server from Adobe, it didn't do anything, right. You couldn't mm-hmm. use it at all. You had to have someone build something on top of it to do anything interesting with it. And so we were kind of looking at, could we build like a sort of Kickstarter kind of solution that like, gave you enough functionality that you could get something started. And then maybe we end up customizing that later or use that as a basis to take to other clients to mm-hmm. say, here, here, we'll start your solution with this. And then we'll add the three pieces you need as some custom work. So we're kind of exploring that, uh, as the next step. <clears throat> and then iPhone happened. Uh, and then pretty soon iPhone SDK happened and we had a little bit of free time. We had also just hired someone, to do QA for us, uh, Brad Ellis, who is actually probably one of the best designers I've ever worked with. Um, yeah. Where, sure, where, right? Do you, do you know where he's at now? I was, uh, um, I can't answer that definitively, but the, he has been doing things kind of as an independent doing design. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it's okay to mention who his clients are. We got oh, some big, yeah, clients, nev- some big clients, right. You know, and maybe it's okay, but I don't, but, but uh, as far as I know, he had not been sucked into one of the big clients, but had been pretty mm. embedded with doing a lot of uh, um, work 
uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, I was just trying of, to keep track of, you know, all these, uh, yeah. you know, Seattle people who, you know, go and work for Apple and then Facebook and yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. trying to think if he was one of those, but yeah, Brad went, uh, to square, he worked with us and then, like I said, he was doing QA with us, but cause he had familiarity with a lot of Adobe products. We're like, Hey, here's someone who can help us QA some of these things we're building. Cause they can, we don't have to teach them how to use these complicated Adobe UIs. Um, uh, but then it became really clear quickly working with him that Brad was a super talented designer mm-hmm. and uh we had started putting him on some UI design stuff for some of the custom work we were doing uh and then iPhone happened and it was like we had this gap in work in which we were um like well Brad why don't you start designing this iPhone app and then we'll have some people who are free probably about the time you get those designs done and we'll just see if we can't crank out a cool app on uh the, the first version of the the real iPhone SDK that came out, the first iPhone SDK. Um, and that worked out pretty well because Brad designed an amazing app. And uh, we had this moment in which we had like about five developers who were all able to like just contribute madly to it for like four or five weeks uh, because of a gap in other work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we made this app called Postage and it was just ahead of the, Apple Design Awards deadline for that year for uh, WWDC. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to actually win uh, ADA with that app that year. So that was that was pretty awesome. So that was yeah. an interesting uh, quick sort of pivoting change that happened within our company that was unexpected, right? Didn't didn't plan for anything like that to happen, but um, but it was super cool to uh, to be a part of. So maybe talk a little bit for people who aren't familiar about what Postage actually was and did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Postage really pretty simple idea. So it was sort of this digital postcard app. And really the idea was uh, we created a bunch of artistic templates that that um, Brad and uh, my wife helped out and some other people helped out on to, you could put a photo in kind of in a slot in one of these templates that had some other design around it, add a little bit of text and then quickly kind of mail that off as a image attachment. You have to understand this all sounds so trivial now, but like at that time you couldn't even send email attachments to with images in the mail app on iPhone, right? This is the very first iPhone. Uh, oh yeah. This would have been before MF, you know, or yeah. whatever the, the mail view mm-hmm. controller thing. Yeah. So like we had, we built our own, well, we, used open source, uh, from mm-hmm. Ian Barrett, uh, an SMTP mailer inside the app. You know, we had to build all that UI to actually send an email, uh, and, you know, use your address book to, and tokenize and stuff. But there was so much UI in that app. It was crazy. And then, like I said, Brad had built this really neat idea that, um, gave you this feeling that the postcard was this sort of thing you were working on and the UI kind of zoomed around it as you worked on the different pieces of it and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this really beautiful, app um it was super cool it was really neat um yeah that just reminds me how much different uh writing apps is now than it was in like back then uh you know like core data didn't even come along Mm -hmm. until the second version of the sdk right uh yeah it was much different like i worked i worked on an app called um air sharing which was Mm -hmm. uh you know, we had a lot of that same kind of work and it was a document sharing app where you could like put your documents in it and then take them with you. Right. Uh, you know, back before like, um, you know, like Dropbox and stuff was like really a thing. Um, 
And, you know, we had a lot of that in it of like, you know, like connecting to server, different kinds mm-hmm. of servers and uh, connecting to your mailboxes and like all kinds of stuff that was, um, yeah. you know, we had to do crazy stuff like what you just said. Yeah. And it was a very constrained platform. It was, it was kind of, it was amazing and crazy all at the same time. Cause uh, one thing it did have, it was missing a lot of, you know, the enormous amounts of frameworks we take for granted today if you're an iOS developer, but it did have all these things from the Mac including core graphics. So it had this really rich graphics API and mm-hmm. core animation, which was amazing, right? Like, uh, there, you know, just, you could build on this rather limited device, these really interactive and playful applications, uh, because of how amazing uh, core animation was. And it wasn't, you know, mind bendingly hard to do. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Super cool. Yeah. And the, the story there, right. Was that core animation, uh, we we found out about it first on uh in like 10.5 right right but uh but it actually came from it it was something they had developed for the iPhone when they were first making it and then it had they had ported it to the Mac because right. it was so cool and useful yep that's exactly right yeah and so it's still a really cool API uh yeah and uh the basis for why i think that you know our mobile apps feel so engaging and and fun and and uh just give, you know playful and have some life to them right you know i just it's mm-hmm. it's amazing to me just to think about how dead and static apps felt before the iphone really kind of made it trivial to add that little bit of motion and and touch and feel and interaction to things it was oh yeah fantastic. for sure yeah and you get some i mean and also i mean even if you're not really explicitly using it, you know, on iOS, you've always gotten so much benefit from that for free, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to underestimate that. And, you know, the other thing that we were just talking about too, the limitations of that first platform, one thing that really cracks me up is thinking about this one issue we had with postage. I was often, uh, I would work on it on Saturdays. My daughter played in a Pokemon league, right? So she played the card game competitively in a league at a game store here, uh, in Seattle. And, um, I would take her to that on Saturdays and sit in the coffee shop next door and pound away on trying to help, uh, finish up postage. And I was, you know, just doing some testing and I kept noticing like, man, why is it like every eighth email or postcard I send crashes? Right. You know, and, um, eventually figured out that like, it just so happened that my mail was checking like every 10 minutes in the background. And when mail checked, that was just enough memory pressure that like whatever we were doing in postage, it was no, no more memory for us. And we would get booted by the watchdog, you know? And I was like, Oh wow. Like it took me a while to realize that like, you know, there's not even enough memory on this device to really be running two apps at once. And then just, yeah. just that little bit of background checking that mail is allowed to do because, you know, privileged Apple apps that could do things in the background. Cause we couldn't do anything in the background at that point. Right. Like when your app wasn't front most, your app was doing nothing. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, then that, that forced us to have to do a pass of like, okay, what do we, what can we do to squeeze down the memory we're taking? Because otherwise we crash like every 10 minutes when someone's mail gets, is checked when you're in the background. So that's it was, nuts. It was kind of almost like building for, you know, not quite the same, but I, I think there's a little bit of an analogy to building for consoles and, uh, you know, get, mm-hmm. game consoles or something where you are, are even embedded. So, cause it was such a constrained platform with this super rich API that made you feel like you're programming on a Mac, but you had so much more limitation, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That first year in like, you know, like 2008, I remember there, you know, like what you're talking about too, is, um, the, uh, you know, the, the memory constraint was pretty intense. I remember when the three GS came out, right. And they went from one twenty eight to two fifty six. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, RAM. And, and it so just felt faster. like yeah. this was just like an impossible amount of RAM. Like, yeah. like it's, it's, it seems like so small now, right? Like that, right. that device is so underpowered now, but that was, right. that was such a big deal. You know, if you're developing apps, it was just that, uh, you know, it was such a big jump. I remember specifically that that was the WWDC that the, that we won the ADA that the 3GS was announced. And when we won the ADA, they brought us up on stage and they were showing off our app and I was watching them show it off. And I'm like, our app's not that fast. <laughs> oh, this is the new iPhone that they're running it on. It looks great on that iPhone. Wow. That's great. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so the, yeah, the, the memory and the speed and everything, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was amazing how constrained everything was. Also, do you also remember back, uh, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but I think it might've even been like before the, you know, before the, um, app store actually came out and you build for your phone yeah. and it would take like 20 minutes or something crazy oh, it was to insane. put it onto your phone. Yeah. I remember, uh, so did you ever go? I can't remember to one of the C4 conferences in uh, No, I never made it to C4. So there was maybe it was the last one um was when people were building up the jailbreak tool chain uh before the SDK came out and there was a iron coder competition at that C4 to like who could make the coolest, you know, iPhone app over the course of that weekend. As in like Iron Chef, right? It was, yeah, yeah. There used yeah. to be a Mac community thing called Iron Coder where there would be one weekend. For, it wasn't people wouldn't gather together to do it, but remotely you'd have the weekend to start a project and, and uh, there was a judge and there would be a SDK and a theme. So it'd be like core animation and time, I don't know, as the theme, like uh-huh. or space or something. I can't remember. And um, and then you'd have the whole weekend to try to hack together the best projects you could that brought all those together. And then there was judging. And it even got to the point where some, like, I, I won, like, a Griffin Radio Shark or something because people were sponsoring the Mac Iron Coder competition and giving away prizes. It was kind of ridiculous, but it was super fun. Nice. And this was uh, an expression of that was just uh, Iron Coder at that C4 conference. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember spending the whole conference like the time that i was allotted to myself to hack on something was really just getting the tool chain to work and like by the end of the conference i could build something for the phone that was it i didn't have anything else done so it was yeah the bar was a little bit lower then yeah right yeah that was crazy yeah that was pretty cool because that was when lucas newman who um later went on to become uh apple employee he worked for um will shipley at uh delicious Mm -hmm. monster uh he i can't remember if he won that competition or not but he had made this really cool uh game for the iphone that looked fantastic and played great uh and so it wasn't too long after that that apple scooped him up yeah i can't remember the name of it but it was the squares game that's right oh lights out lights out out. Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah that was a great game actually yep I think there was a version of that even that worked in the mobile Safari before that. I think oh, it was like, yeah, there might've been. Yep. Yeah. So you did this. I think the thing, a lot of people who are listening right now are going to be familiar with that you worked on more recently is you did this app with a uh, guy English called yep. napkin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So at rogue sheep, there was, you know, that the interesting, the postage success was, was blessing and a curse all at the same time because it kind of made us confused and this is, this is largely my fault being the ceo at the time of the company and not probably guiding us correctly but we really had a hard time figuring out how we were going to try to capitalize on the success of postage and while it was a popular app that won a design award and uh was in apple stores all the time and stuff 
we didn't really make that much money from it. If you have a company of like six or seven people, like if I had made postage by myself, I'd be like, Oh, I could probably get by on the money that it made, but it's, yeah. but it doesn't really do it for, you know, a company of the size that we already were. And so that created a lot of problems trying to figure out like, where do we go from here? Is it because we don't know how to market it? Is, you know, then that was postage was a $5 app to start. I can't remember if we were 10 or $5 to start, but like we were expensive, right? It wasn't too long mm-hmm. before like 99 cents was as much as anyone would pay for an app. Um, and, and so that was an interesting you know, conundrum where we're like, this isn't enough for us to start to build the company, to run the company off of this. So, so what do we do next? And we all had kind of different ideas of how we might pursue that. And we also started kind of dipping our toes, of course, into iOS contracting work, right? Because uh, all of a sudden the demand for that was really starting to step up and there weren't a lot of people in the world that knew anything about Objective-C and Cocoa compared to these days, right? You know, um, so there was tons of work for us to do that, but all, but you know, we had been contracting and not being a product company for like five years of existence, you know? And so there was a lot of reluctance to be like, yeah, let's dive in and be a contracting shop is like, isn't that what we were trying to avoid for all these years? Um, mm-hmm. so at some point, like there just became a, a obvious like resting point where I could say, you know, I think that I need to leave the company now and pursue other things. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I parted ways with my partners. Um, we made, we made one other really cool app that we did, uh, that we tried to market at that right before I left called, um, touch up, which is right when iPad came out, we made an image editor, uh, that would let you stack layers of filters. You know, we built some, some filters and could do some common operations, you know, kind of <clears throat> color shift, hue shift blurs and sharpen and stuff. And you could paint it all with your finger. So it was I actually really loved that app. It was it was super cool uh, to do some of that stuff on iPad. But it was another mm-hmm. perfect example of interesting, got a lot of attention, won some awards, and made money, but, you know, not really enough to support a company, right? You know, so it was like that's almost the exact same scenario as what happened with, with Postage and, you know. Um, yeah, supporting six people on a $5 right, app or right, whatever is yeah. pretty, pretty difficult. Exactly. Uh, so is that another like kind of core image based thing too? Uh, this was previous to core image being available. So we actually, oh, yeah. this one was pretty cool. I was pretty proud of this because we built up a whole image processing framework like core image that use, used uh, OpenGL, right? Um, so mm. we had OpenGL shaders that basically were most of the filtering operations. It wasn't actually possible on that iPad to do like blurs were too computationally expensive. We had to do something else for mm. that. But most of it was all run through OpenGL shaders. Um, and that was super fun to build. Um, you know, it had this really interesting, deep technical part that was, was a, a fun challenge. And then it was fun just to try to build the UI for it as well. Right. So, uh, uh, and that was a cool app. I really missed that app. I thought about, I talked with the guys when I left Rogue Sheep because I, we had just finished touch up and I'd put so much work into it. And I thought about bringing it along and maybe being the, what I worked on separate, um, but I just also thought, you know, I just need a clean slate. And that's what I eventually convinced myself was, was like, you know, time to just let that go, move on to the next thing. And, and that next thing was, it turns out right around that same time, our friend Guy English was, um, had been working with the tap tap people for quite a bit. Um, and he, for years he had been working on what was the predecessor to napkin on the Mac. Um, and he had approached me cause he thought he was going to do a different sort of 
kind of a startup like thing. Uh, and he's like, Hey, you know, I did all this. Do you want to just make it, turn it into a product and really put it out there so it doesn't just go to waste after all this time I spent doing this? And I was like, Hey, that sounds interesting. And then right about the time I left Rogue Sheep, guys, other plans had kind of fallen through. So it's like, why don't we just start a company and, and do this thing? And so that's where Agent Distilled was born. And Napkin was the iteration of the original app that he, he had a little bit more of a collaboration app, but that he had built that we turned into the the product that it is today. Yeah, which Napkin is this uh, great app for annotating and, you know, images and, you know, adding arrows and boxes yeah, yeah. and all that sort of stuff too. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly right. So yeah, so that was super fun. It was really fun to build uh, a Mac app again after having worked on a lot of iOS products um, and taking a, a real deep dive. I wasn't as versed in AppKit as Guy was, despite all the spending my entire career developing on the Mac. Most of it was not using Apple's frameworks as much as using things like these Adobe frameworks or other things, right? And so uh, that was really fun for me to take my sort of not terribly deep knowledge of AppKit and, and take a really deep dive and, and uh, spend some time making a real canvas-based multi-document Mac app. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that is a, that, that, that is really a Mac app, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and I think that came out around the time, uh, I think I remember you guys talking about it around the time that Guy was doing uh you know, his conference in Montreal Yeah, mm-hmm. around the first one. I would I say, yeah, I'm almost positive. I can't remember if we, re- I don't think we had quite released it yet because I think I went to Montreal ahead of the first singleton and spent some time with a guy face to face while we worked out some of the final details, uh, right before the conference of what we need to do. I think that must've been, I might have that wrong. I don't know. We may have took us much longer to actually ship it. Like that was probably in October and it felt Mm -hmm. like, Hey, we're going to really get a bunch of stuff done. And then we realized we still have a lot to do. And it might've been actually like the next February before we really shipped the app. But, but, um, but I, but we did. Yeah. So that, that sounds about right. That it was probably that first singleton when we were deep, deep working in napkin right before we released it, I bet. Yeah. that was, that was such a great conference. uh, Singleton. I, I, uh, I, I went to the first two, I think he did three total, right? That sounds right. Yep. Yeah. And I went to the first two and the, I mean, I, uh, it, it was really just like, uh, I don't know. It all felt very, um, high, I don't know, very well produced kind of like a very nice conference. Does that it make was. sense? No, it was very nice and personal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that whole single track thing, mm-hmm. um, and small, the dinners were very, I don't want to say formal, but they, but they weren't like, you know, your typical sort of buffet style kind of like, Hey, let's all just, you're having dinner provided. It was like a well thought out, uh, experience. Um, it was, yeah, it was like a real dinner. It was like a real dinner. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. So, um, and Montreal is so beautiful. And Montreal is uh, super, super nice place to be. Yeah. And I remember the location he had in, especially the second year where I think we were kind of close to the water and we yeah. were right in the kind of old town area. That, that was just a fantastic conference. I, uh, yep. I keep trying to think of another reason to go to Montreal, mostly because <laughs> there's that there's that one restaurant that you and I went to there a couple times, the uh, vegetarian yeah, restaurant, right. yeah, there was like yeah. Ovive or something. Uh, yeah. That uh, that yeah, I keep trying to think of a reason just to go back to there. That was but, a really um, good place, yeah. That's a really good restaurant, but I've, I've only gotten to go there two or three times, uh, and I don't know if I will again. 
Um, so we were, so, okay. So that's, you could just organize in. a conference in Montreal. Like you know, it doesn't have to be guys that's true. conference. You could just, that's true. Could I could, I could just maybe, may, you know, maybe run loop conference someday will be a thing. Um, uh, so spoilers. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you did this app with, with guy and that, you know, thing you guys have worked on over time. Uh, and then something, uh, you were talking about, uh, to me previous to recording, was that you are joining a new startup. Yeah, so a lot, Napkin suffers a little bit from the same repeated story. You can see why I'm so negative on this. Um, Napkin does really quite well, especially for the limited attention that we've given it. And every time we do give it lots of attention, it does even and better. But Guy and I both have always been um, distracted by other contracting work. <laughs> Surprise. Uh-huh. Imagine that. See, this is the real problem when you have family and kids about to go to college and things and, and healthcare needs. Um, you know, these, like it's, it's hard to do the, uh, small budget indie thing sometimes. And so napkin's been super successful, but it's also, it's, we also brought in, we, we had benefited a lot from a, a longtime friend of guys, uh, who did a lot of the art and design side of things for us when we needed it, um, for aged and distilled, Thomas and, um, Thomas worked way too much for us without us paying him very much. And so at some point we're like, you know, Thomas, you need to be a part of this company. It doesn't make any sense that you're like this contractor that we use. Sometimes you spend so much time helping us. Right. Um, and so we just kind of, uh, rolled in Thomas into the company. So there was three of us and and it's like, then it's that kind of same story where it's like, if, if napkin were any one of us, we would be like living on it and, and doing great. But when it's three of us, there's this hump, you know, that's really hard to cross. That's like, you know, making enough money to support three people with, you know, d- different financial needs. And Thomas has a young family and I've got, you know, my kids and whatnot. And so it just, there, there was never quite enough, um, finances for me to totally like abandon the whole contracting on the side thing. Uh, and that was true for, for, for guy to some degree as well, I think. And, uh, and Thomas and whatnot. So we were always doing other things at the same time that we were doing aged and distilled. Uh, and so that's kind of led to me getting sucked into uh, a new startup that, uh, it's not a new startup, actually. It's someone that's been going for a long time. I had done some contracting work for them many years ago. Um, but they kind of asked me back when they were, that was for a Mac app and, uh, mm. Not too long ago, they'd asked me to come help them with their iOS app. And then that just kind of snowballed into eventually, um, them convincing me that, uh, maybe I should stop contracting and should full time come work for them. And the nice thing is they're very cool with me having other interests on the side. So we can still have aged and distilled and uh, still do napkin and it doesn't, these guys don't mind. Uh, it's a, you know, so <clears throat> there's not really a conflict of interest there. Um, and that was, that was really, uh, I was kind of talking to you about this. That was, it was hard for me to make that step because I mean, geez, you know, we've just talked about my whole career here. So I think it's like a 12 year period in which I have been a founder of a company yeah. and, and kind of the person deciding what happens with a very powerful voice in that, not a powerful is not the word, but an important voice in that. Right. And, um, it was, it's kind of weird to transition into like, now it's someone else's company really, right. I'm not the founder of this company. I'm just one of the first early people on board of this thing. And, uh, not to say I don't have a voice there, but it does feel really different that like, I'm not worried about the marketing message and I'm not doing the tech support. Right. And I'm, you know, it, I'm really just kind of compartmentalized into, you know, iOS app and, and that's my 
concerns, um, which is refreshing in one way because I feel like a little bit like, you know, I have a lot of, uh, less weight on me and I have time to, to do more things with my family and uh-huh. to take care of other things that get neglected all the time when you're a small business person and, and you're working all the time. Um, but it is a startup, so we're kind of working all the time and there's a lot of pressure as well to do that. And then I, I was also telling you, you know, last year, late last year, when it became apparent that like, you know, things like healthcare may be changing dramatically because of the current political landscape. I have a son who's a type one diabetic and our medical expenses are are high already because I was already paying for insurance as an individual. Right. So uh, none of the companies that I've had since rogue sheep were big enough to even be in any kind of pool. Right. So like, it's always just been me paying for insurance, uh, out of pocket on top of he already has a lot of medical expenses that aren't covered by insurance. Just being a type one diabetic, totally manageable disease. Uh, you can live a normal life and everything, but you have a huge dependency on a lot of medical supplies, right? You're constantly dealing with syringes and insulin and insulin pumps and, uh, glucose monitors and, and things like this. And so those things that like, it's kind of like razor blades. Like if you think razor blades are a ripoff, like anything in this world of medical devices, like they'll practically give you the $3,000 device for free because they know that you're going to be getting cartridges for that pump for many, many years. Right. And those cartridges cost a lot to get new, you know, plug in new insulin to the pump. So, so anyway, what I'm trying to say is like, we have like one, a lot of medical expenses and two, a lot of concerns that like, if, if we had any trouble getting healthcare, it would make a huge impact on our family. And, you know, the kind of thing where we would seriously have to look at, like, maybe we're going to move somewhere. Like my, my wife spends a lot of time in, um, Europe right now. And is trying to get a branch of her startup that she has going started in London. And so it's like, you know, mm-hmm. that might have to be an option just because we wouldn't have, uh, if we couldn't have a uh, healthcare for my son, it would be a huge deal. And so knowing that that was up, knowing that, you know, that there had been all these distractions anyway, um, yeah, needing that time, it was easy to like, sort of say, okay, you guys convince me I'll take a real position and mm. take the healthcare that comes with it. And that'll be nice. So. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, with the, uh, you know, the, there being doubt around what's going to happen with pre-existing conditions and all of that right now, oh, that, yeah, that, right? that makes a lot of sense. That'd be very concerning to right? you. I mean, I feel like I've put myself in a slightly better position than what we'd had. The, the nice thing is we live in Washington state and I, and I think that, you know, we'll be one of the holdouts that won't be looking to abandon the people in need as rapidly as some of the other places that aren't in as fortunate of a situation. But, um, but nonetheless, even with this move, when I look at some of the things that are coming down <clears throat> the pipe and, and what they're proposing, I'm like, that could easily be my son. Like he may be in a position where he cannot get healthcare in the near future, which like I said, may make a big up people for our family. We may have to make uh, a big decision if something like that happens, you know? Yeah. And obviously that's, you know, super scary for everybody, but especially if you have a family and people who depend on you, right, uh, I right. can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And even like I said with him, like, I mean, we could, we could, we're fortunate enough to have sufficient means to pay for all of his uh, diabetic care without insurance. Like, let's say that we didn't have the insurance. It would be a huge hit. It would be like putting a, a third kid through college, but we could afford to make sure we cut back and make changes to our life so that he could have all the supplies and, and doctor's mm-hmm. visits that he needs. But if he can't have insurance for anything else that happens because of a pre-existing condition, because he gets hurt in a skateboard accident, or, you know, he's going to be driving a car in a couple of years or playing, you know, we play soccer all the time or something. 
like just not being able to have any kind of coverage for anything else that might come up um, would be devastating. Right. And, and so we'd have to consider making a, a big change so that we could have some sort of protection for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously, hopefully our, you know, our representatives uh, do the right thing because yeah. I don't think anybody would think that, you know, somebody like your kid who, uh, you know, didn't do anything right. wrong or right. whatever should, you know, be denied that. Uh, okay. So let's move on to a slightly different topic <laughs> um, from there. Uh, so you were talking about, uh, we were also talking about, you know, uh, now that we're up to present, we also talking about you talking about like, sort of what you see is like the next phase for you going forward in your career, uh, you know, and this idea of that we're sort of reinventing the same tools and whatever. And you, you were talking to me about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I had this kind of, I don't know if it was an epiphany, but this growing realization that like, <clears throat> I'm not the kind of programmer that likes programming really. Like, I could go the rest of my life and never write a line of code and probably be happy. Let's say I wouldn't do it if it could help me achieve something I want to do, but I'm far more interested in the final results. I think that's why I've been a lifelong Mac user too, right? Like for me, it's been less about nerding out on the computer. I mean, I did that more when I was young, but like I kind of grew out of that and more about like, what can I use this to do? I'm more interested in the things that this enables me to do rather than just kind of getting mired down in the technical details of, computation and computing and, and to some degree building applications. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't do a lot of programming for enjoyment. I don't think of programming for enjoyment. I think of, I want that app to exist, or I want to, you know, explore this, uh, image processing algorithm. Like those are the kind mm -hmm. of things that I think are fun. It's that result or like, you know, maybe a physics simulation is fun because I really love the idea of, of physics or something. Um, but the, the act of programming that thing is just, it's, Le that's less interesting to me, right? Um, yeah, you like you, you like having the thing. And exactly. You like figuring you like figuring it out and having the thing, but like it's not the uh, it's it's but actually like typing the code yeah. is just it's, that's just how you get there. Exactly. There was a if there were, if you could get there without that, you would do that instead. That's exactly right, and and so yeah, I've been, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, uh, and and with some other people too. A good friend of mine, Luke Adamson, and I've talked about this a lot. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, it's kind of weird that our tools haven't changed that much. I mean, we're still basically typing the same kind of syntax, uh, into text files that get compiled or interpreted. Uh, you know, the frameworks have gotten more sophisticated, but they're still kind of largely the same sorts of things. Uh, you know, it, it just, it seems like a shame that we have all this computational power and all these advancements happening in other places. If you just look at how machine learning is driving cars and, you know, helping us search, helping us, uh, understand the content of images, helping us understand spoken word to provide interfaces for that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, flying drones, whatever else, right. There's, there's all these interesting things going on with the enormous amounts of <clears throat> computational power that we have on our desktops and in our pockets all the time, but we still kind of build apps using the same stupid tools, right? Yeah. Um, like Xcode and interface built. I mean, right. Xcode interface builders in Xcode, but like it's recognizably project builder or whatever it was called, exactly, right? right yeah. Which is recognizably the same thing that was on the next in like the nineties. Right. And, and if you think about it, there's, there's still tons of people who hate interface builder, right? Like they would rather just write it all in the code. Right. And there's, there's a point, which, oh, go ahead. We, 
Sorry, which, which by the way, I think is crazy. I, I love yeah. interface built. <laughs> I mean, I, I have my problems with it. And I certainly, I, I get one of the biggest complaints there is that you get, it, it does suck when you have things kind of in two places, right? Like you can express mm-hmm. some things in interface builder and some things in code and, and having to deal with that sort of mismatch sometimes uh, when it's, especially when it's not your code that you've written and you're trying to investigate someone else's is a real pain. Like, but that's kind of what I, what I'm saying is like, why isn't that more integrated? Like we get these little things like IB uh, designable and uh, what, whatever yeah. the other one is, I can't remember now, but um, they try to build that connection a little stronger, but it seems like that, that, you know, honestly, why isn't my app sort of running in interface builder, right? You know, all of it, all my code and in interface builder yeah. running so that anything I do is incorporating also what's in there. And I realize that's a hard problem, but it doesn't feel like we're, pushing that very hard, right? Um, and- yeah, like interface builders become a lot more capable over the last, right. you know, it, like I remember earlier on in the first, like the first two, three SDK versions, I think there was a really good argument for interface builder being a little bit useless right. uh, because it ended up being like 90, you had to do 90% of the working code anyway. But, um, you know, it has become a lot more capable. But like you said, it sort of feels like, why isn't 90% of the work in Interface Builder right, or right. something? Well, and yeah. that's the other thing that, you know, like Luke and I and other people I've talked with, you know, had this like, like I work on a lot of UI code. That's kind of what I'm good at maybe and, and specialize mm-hmm. in a little bit. And, you know, like this process that happens all the time where the designer designs it in some app and then I'm. I think one of the things is I'm pretty good at translating what they put into that file into the code, but that's through all the iterations and all the time I spent doing that, not because the tools are helping me do that. Right. And at some point you're like, people build prototypes and they do these designs and we usually throw both of those away and start over in the code. Right. And Mm -hmm. there ought to be something that I think bridges that gap. And I know lots of people have tried this in many different ways over the years, but I just, I feel like there's still, we'll be there. There's, we have kind of the capabilities and the sensibility to do this. And I think we just have to kind of look at the problem differently. And we have to like not get trapped into thinking like, this is the way we've always done it. And this is what I'm good at or be threatened as a developer. Like, uh, you know, I don't want someone to do that because then I don't get to do my piece or whatever. Right. You know, um, it feels like for at least certain varieties of apps and tasks that, that this ought to be where we're going. I mean, like on a bigger level, I hear all the time, all this stuff, like everyone should learn to code and let's teach everyone to code. And part of me gets a little bit like ick about that because I think coding sucks. And I, and, and I, I get it. Like, I think really like think about solving problems in this very logical way is a cool thing to teach people, but man, coding is just shit. Like let's do something else. Right. You know? And you know, maybe it's hypercard, like, you know, something not, not hypercard done again, but I feel like we're ripe for some sort of revolution like that, where we ought to be using the power of the computers to solve the problems for us rather than us having to, to program them like we do, you know, and then maybe the, the ultimate expression of this is like, you know, in Star Trek, the next generation, when people are in the holodeck, and I think of like those episodes where Geordi LaForge is like, you know, talking with the computer and, and even inventing a, hologram of, you know, some scientist to help him or engineer to help him solve the problems. Like that's really what we should be doing instead of writing code, mm-hmm. I think. Right. You know, which is Dr. Leah Brahms for yes. the, uh, <laughs> for, for the record. Or my, my other favorite one is uh computer create a, he says, computer create a adversary who's capable of beating Mr. Data. Right. Right. There you and go. then, so it just creates <laughs> like a sentient hologram right. out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Um, Sorry, I just love Star Trek so much. Uh, but anyway, um, no, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, 
Actually, you know, I have another great example of this. I'll, I'll distract you for just a second. Back when I was in college the first time, I guess I've gone to college three times, which is a funny thing. But um, I had a roommate who was uh, really great with physics. He worked in the physics lab at the University of Oklahoma doing research. And he got a chance to um, conduct an experiment at the Fermi lab in Chicago, I think, which is particle accelerator in Chicago. Uh-huh. And um, he was, you know, he had all these electronics and boards and sensors and he was, um, building all of his software using a product on a Mac called LabVIEW, right? So it was like, which I, if I remember right, has become the way that you program Mindstorm Legos. At least it was some years ago, like that product mutated and, or maybe they licensed it or something for the Legos Mindstorms, but it was like Mm -hmm. a visual programming language, right? So he wasn't like a programmer, like there wasn't, you know, he wasn't writing C there wasn't things like Python and whatnot back then. It would be like C or Fortran were your two choices, right? Maybe Pascal, but probably not if you're in a physics lab. And, um, you know, he's using this Mac with this app that lets him drag out nodes and connect them. And the nodes represent certain sensors out there right sitting next to us in the room, you know, and wire up all the things. And it was super cool. And he wasn't a computer programmer yet. He was programming a computer to conduct a experiment in a particle accelerator, right? Mm-hmm. Using what most people would be like, it was one of the few Macs in the, in the department, right? Like, because it's like, Oh, that's why I computer the Mac, but it, it was so expressive with the graphical user interface and this lab view programming language essentially right in a development environment um that he was able to do something that was like outstandingly complex right who the hell knows how to do particle physics right you know but here we are to have this person being able to build experiments using a graphical language right um so i i mean and maybe that's not the expression but things like that it feels like we need more of that you know we need to be building things or, or even like i was thinking about machine learning and like What's, you know, a lot of what I do is like fixing layout problems and especially with, you know, it was so great when the iPhone had one size screen because then, you know, the layout's right. But now that was so sweet, right? I had so many magic numbers in my code. It was the best. It was awesome. Right. So I shouldn't admit that. No, I know I do. I'm still doing it today and trying to 320 by four, six. (laughs) Exactly. Right. It's almost hard to avoid that problem. But, um, you know, even with auto layout and stuff, what happens is, you know, the designers, I mean, I, Designers generally design at one size, probably. I, most mm-hmm. people I work with do it this way. Um, and <clears throat> I don't blame them. Tend to choose the things that are aesthetically nice looking in the designs, right? And then the real world is like you get this data that's less than perfect and people are on different size screen and then this weird shit happens. And <clears throat> you're constantly trying to figure out ways to solve that problem without using magic numbers so you don't feel dirty, but then every now and then you have to slip one in or whatever. Um I kind of feel like that's exactly the sort of thing where it's like, why, why don't we have like some mode of auto layout where it's using like some sort of learning algorithm and we can sort of say it, the layout's wrong. And I can, I can tap it and say, Nope, not this. And it should have been like this. And then it writes the layout rules for me based on me iterating through telling it, this was right. This was wrong. This was right. This is wrong. Right. You know, Uh instead of me having to like try to imagine this complicated system of constraints and and who who's the one that breaks and who should have what priority on breaking like this that's a great expression for the underneath engine i want a better tool on top of that that's more like me like a dumb monkey just going nope this not that not this this yes that and it figuring it out for me you know yeah it's like we um it's like it's like you're saying it'd be nice if you could get there if you really needed to but it's like exactly why is that like the default level of abstraction is like right. manually tweaking every number 
instead of like it's it seems like it's built in such a way that you should be able to be like one level higher right like by default um so there were two things you you mentioned that i wanted to comment on you're talking about the idea of uh the everybody should learn how to code thing and i think my feeling on that would be that everyone should have the opportunity yeah i right? like that expression a lot better everybody yeah. should have the opportunity but the idea, I, I feel as though when we say everybody should learn to code is it's kind of like a thing where, you know, there's a lot of jobs in that right now. And it's sort of the, um, it's kind of cool. You know what I mean? Right. And I feel like we're, I don't know, it's sort of like saying like in the eighties, like everybody should learn Japanese or something, right? right? Which is like a cool thing to do, but maybe not actually every kid needed to do that. Right. I don't know if that right. makes any sense. No, it does. Um, uh, and, th- and then the other thing you're talking about, which is, you know, I think there's a lot of sense in the idea that, you know, that if you're, it is weird that we have to write code, we have to write so much code, you know, like thousands of lines of code to basically do and make an app, which is like, you know, download some stuff, you know, <laughs> download some JSON from the network, do a thing to that JSON, save it in a database, show those things. And that's like, you know, like, you know, the app I'm working on right now, that's like 90% oh, of what yeah. it does, right? Uh, and that's like most apps I've worked on the last few years, uh, you know, that are a front end for some website, that's basically all it is, right? And, uh, you know, but you still, every part of that step is manual. And it's very easy to imagine a version of that, right? Where it's like, you know, here are the endpoints. Yep. Here's the transformation I want to do to that. Here's how I want to save it here. You know, where it's not all just, you know, thousands and thousands of like lines of code that can break all the time. That's right. Or, you know, a library that you end up being dependent on that, you know, like I, I that's the other thing that, you know, I, I kind of hate how currently we're just like more and more dependencies for everything, which is okay on the surface. I get not reinventing it, but it, but it's, it doesn't seem like that level of abstraction carries too far. And then you have all these things that now you're spending all your time managing those dependencies and, and making mm-hmm. that work and accidentally introducing bugs because, um, you don't even know, uh, that, you know, you took the update to the library and now there's a new bug in your product that you didn't even think to be able to test. Cause it was in some area that you're not even looking at, you know? So I'm not a big fan. I, I love the idea of sharing the code and, and building on other building blocks, but it just seems like that process is a little, I don't know. Just not, not. It's just a little too risky and a little too weird for me for the way that we uh, we tend. Seems like that it's popular to approach using that. So, oh, you mean just where you're grabbing ten different exactly. frameworks and yeah. plugging like, them in? Yeah. Like the first answer is let's go find a framework, you know. And uh, I, that's probably the last thing I think of, unless the problem, unless I can really clearly define the problem as this would take a long time to build. Like I'm not going to build a jpeg decoder using a discrete cosine transform because i do trust that that problem has been solved you know plenty of times uh and i can mm-hmm. answer that but like but the but that level of abstraction where we're building where we build our apps where we spend most of our time building our apps i feel like uh it's, it's just not generic enough like that it's not so single purposed enough that the <clears throat> building in all these frameworks works so well no i i absolutely agree and i mean there's a there are a few things that I'll pull in because I've used them before and I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, I kind of know, you know, like there's like an image caching thing that I use and right. things like that. But I tend to really avoid using any framework, you know, pulling in anybody else's code where it's going to be kind of a central part of my app. Yep. You know, like right now I'm using a networking library and it's like, okay, except that they update it, you know, right. dramatically every right. year. Right. And like, it's like, oh, my app's completely broken now for right. like the amount of time that I, you know, go to update this. 
Um, yeah, so I definitely feel the same way. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I was ultimately, yeah, that's like you said, what, what I've been thinking about. And I, and as I think about, you know, like I just had my 45th birthday, I'm like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Am I going to write code? I don't really like <laughs> writing code. And then I think about this whole process. Yeah. I'm like, man, I don't like any of this. And it's like, but this is what I'm good at. And I spent all my time doing, maybe I'm not mm-hmm. that good at it, but it's what I know how to do. I don't know. And so it's, it's difficult to imagine, but I think that what will keep me interested and keep me in this space is starting to look at some of those problems of like, how can we approach this differently so that everyone can customize a computer to get what they want done out of it uh, without having to become a programmer in the sense that you and I are programmers right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that seems like a really good place to, uh, to stop for this for today. Um, Do you have any final thoughts or, uh, you know, maybe where people can find you? Yeah. Uh, so one thing I didn't say, I said I was joining a startup, but the startup, it's not like in stealth mode or anything. It's very public. Uh, um, it's, it's called rabbit R a B B dot I T. Uh, it's kind uh-huh. of amazing that they managed to get that domain. Um, and it's, it's this really cool app for, um, if you wanted to be able to have like a video chat client where you could watch other content with people. So like if you and I want to sit down and watch a Netflix show together, or maybe mm-hmm. with a couple other people, um, that is what this app is focused on. Uh, and it's really cool. It's growing really fast. Um, it's a neat idea. Uh, it's kind of fun to be out there in that startup world, seeing how this all works and, uh, trying to grow this app that already has quite a few users and trying to, to make it even bigger. That's awesome. I'll that, you know, put a link in the show notes for yeah. that. I, I actually, you weren't saying explicitly what it was. So I was kind of like, oh, maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, no, so, I didn't, just, so I didn't push you on it. Uh, so that's funny now. Yeah, see, this is just the bad side of me where I'm not the founder. So I don't think about the marketing side of it anymore, right? So I should probably be a bad employee. I should be, I should be pumping and pimping our app, right? So maybe. Um, okay, so, so uh, <laughs> rabbit, uh, you know, R-A-B-B dot yeah. I-T, you said? Yep, that's yep. right. Yep. So we'll make sure that's in the show notes. And then uh, if people want to find you on uh, Twitter, et cetera, blog, anything like that. Yep. Uh, you know, I never really blog for real, though. Manton's uh, thing has got me excited, so maybe that'll happen at some point. But uh, you can find me on Twitter at 23, it's T-W-E-N-T-Y and the number three. Uh, and that's where I spend most of my public time, I guess, uh, and reachable through that. Uh, and then of course you can always contact me if you go to the aged and distilled website and send a support ticket in, it'll end up at me anyway. So you can always reach me through that as well. Awesome. And, uh, if you'd like to follow, uh, me on Twitter, I'm at Colin Donnell. If you'd like to follow the run loop on Twitter, it's at the run loop. Uh, and if you would like to support the show on Patreon, you can get in at the low rate of $1 to start, uh, at, uh, patreon.com slash Colin Donald. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show and, you know, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it was great fun. And I'm glad to uh, have had this conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Talk to you soon.